This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you flew recently, did, did the airports you went through have facial recognition technology? I flew through DCA, the Reagan International Airport in Washington, and it was one of the first airports to get uh, facial recognition with TSA. That's Jeffrey Fowler, a technology columnist for The Washington Post. I personally did not uh, get my face scanned because I have TSA Pre and they have not put that technology into TSA Pre yet. Would you have done it? No. Tell me why. I'm also a journalist, so I would have wanted to test to see uh, what they would have said. But, you know, I would tell listeners as well, say no, if only because it might slow you down by a little bit today, but it also sends a message that uh, the TSA should be noticing that people are not comfortable with this. If you're traveling this holiday or this summer, you might notice facial recognition at TSA checkpoints too. At 25 airports in the U.S. and Puerto Rico, the TSA is expanding a controversial digital identification program that uses facial recognition. Travelers may notice kiosks with small cameras checking photos on their IDs to verify their identities. Often, as Jeffrey said, travelers are confused or uncomfortable when they first encounter this tech. And an airport is not exactly the most relaxed environment to try to figure out on the fly whether you want to opt in to facial recognition. So today on the show, we're going to break down how this tech ended up in U.S. airports, whether it works, and why Jeffrey is so skeptical. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're traveling soon, you might be dreading the airport. Right now, just getting through a packed and grumpy crowd to security is an exhausting process. They have to stand in a long line, stand in front of a an agent, hand them an ID, show them their boarding pass. And that agent has the job of making sure that um, you are the same person who's on that ID. And then you're ushered on to, uh, to TSA screening. 
how does facial recognition figure into this system? So increasingly at airports across the U.S., the TSA is trying to augment and then probably at some point replace those human agents with a computer, with an artificial intelligence algorithm that will decide whether you really belong on that plane. While face screening might feel new, the roots of this program go back to 9-11. After the attacks, Congress tasked the Department of Homeland Security with incorporating biometric techniques into the screening process. And over the past couple of, I guess now, decades, uh, they experimented with a lot. They tried uh, iris recognition. They thought about fingerprints. And really around 2020, and particularly around the uh, pandemic, uh, the TSA really settled on uh, uh, their latest experiment with facial recognition and started rolling that out at more and more more places. And you know, the thing that really made that possible, I think, is we're now going on almost a decade of having iPhones and other mm. kinds of phones that unlock with our faces. And uh, Americans have gotten very accustomed to that idea, to the idea that you could just look at a phone and it's a very normal thing and it'll unlock for you and that's safe and that's secure. So uh, the TSA said, well, people are comfortable with this. Let's let's roll out our version of it. You know, I, I flew to Italy not so long ago and I was surprised I walked to my gate. And when I was about to board my flight, Delta scanned my face. And and it sort of made me think like, oh, wait, how how much is the government working in concert with the airlines? Where did this start? Kind of how are they coordinating? Yeah, uh, the experience you had uh, was an earlier, slightly earlier version of this. So back in 2019, and it had started even before then, um, I, I wrote a column for the Post about uh, these partnerships between airlines and both uh, TSA, but then also the Department of Homeland Security and immigration to essentially try to turn our faces into our tickets. Hmm. So instead of having to present a ticket, you just present your face and you walk on through. And this is using uh, some of the same kind of facial recognition technology, but it. Uh, it, it was really sold to consumers and still is as a convenience, right? Hey, you don't want to wait in a long line. You don't want to have to like have a human, you know, check your stuff or carry around and get out your passport. So just uh, give us permission and we'll we'll check your face. So it sounds like maybe you were part of one of those programs. Yeah, I think so. Did you opt into it in advance? No, I just walked hmm. right on up and that's what happened. Now that may be because I'm a frequent flyer with them. I don't know. Well, so what uh, your experience says is exactly what the fears of a lot of uh, folks who are cautious about this technology and privacy advocates have been warning about, which is stuff that starts as, this is totally voluntary, you're going to have to opt in, you totally don't have to do it, becomes, wait a minute, if you want to get through the airport, you have to be scanned. Hmm. I, I want to dig deep into the privacy stuff, but first I actually want to understand the tech a little bit. Um what do we know about how this actually works? Well, facial recognition technology um, has been around for a while, and it takes on different kinds of, of forms. Yeah. Uh, when you do it on your iPhone, uh, your iPhone has all sorts of sensors. It has a camera, and it has a, a depth sensor, and it's got, on a secure part of the iPhone, a map of your face. And every time you look at it, it says, is this that person, yes or no? And then it lets you in. It all stays on your phone. It's a little bit different with what they're doing at the airport with TSA. 
TSA has two different ways that they're going about this. The first way is uh, what they call a one-to-one comparison. So they have a little computer at this kiosk that you go up to, and you put your ID into it, and it looks on the ID at the picture there, and it tries to see, okay, is the person standing in front of this kiosk the same person as on this ID? Hmm. And the computer decides yes or no, uh, shows it to a human before... A final decision is made, and uh, then you're allowed to walk on or you're asked more questions. Uh, So that's one way they're doing it. The other way that they increasingly want to do and are doing, particularly for international travel, is called a one-to-many system. So in that case, um, they're not comparing it to your, your physical ID. In that case, they have a database of photos of lots of people. Now, one of the challenges is there are different kinds of error rates, we assume, with those different kinds of technology. It's much harder to do one-to-many than it is to do one-to-one. Where where does that database come from? Like, how, how do they have that photo of me that's floating around in their database? So today, uh, uh, it is an opt-in kind of process. So just like many Americans have opted into first getting a passport, when you get a passport, you give the government a photo. Uh, And then also there are programs like Global Entry and TSA PreCheck. And when you do that, you also give the government a picture. Um, There are also, I think in the future, or maybe in some cases already, airlines that are going to ask for your picture. So Uh, They're asking you for your picture and then saying, do you want to be part of this? And if you do, um, we're going to use it and store it in a database to make this comparison. Uh, That's the way it works for now. The fear is, where does this go next? Do we eventually end up with national databases of the photos of every American or every person who's traveled um, through American uh, uh, borders. And then once we have that, do we just use that when people are boarding an airplane or do we use that when people are walking around on the street or do we use that when there's a protest? That's a really slippery slope. One thing that's hard to know right now is how accurate the facial recognition process is beyond what the TSA says. There was a study uh, that happened a couple of years ago by the National Institutes of Science and Technology that showed that uh, depending on the algorithm, depending on the system, uh, there could be a significant error in facial recognition uh, for people who have darker skin tones, African-American people, and also Asian people. That said, that was in a kind of laboratory setting. There are two different kinds of errors that it could have with different kinds of implications for our society, and we should talk about those. Uh, the first kind of error is uh, is a false negative. So you go up to the up to the the booth and you say, you present yourself, and you say, I, "I'm supposed to be on this plane today," and it says, "Oh no, it's not you." Huh. If that happens to you, that could lead you to having your travel delayed. You get an extra pat down all kinds of stuff. You know, people are, are live in fear of, of what's going to happen to them if they get asked to step aside at the airport. Um, the other thing uh, that could happen, the other kind of error that could happen is a false positive. And that was the whole purpose of this in the first place, right? Where we're trying to ensure safety and security. And um, how often does that happen is another question. And do we have any idea? Uh, so I asked the TSA, and they said, it's working great. And I said, do you have the data? They said, no, we'll have to present that to Congress at some other time. So after I wrote my column in the Washington Post, several senators wrote to the TSA and said, hey, what are your actual error rates? And I have the letter that the TSA sent in response a couple of weeks ago. They said, uh, specific results for accuracy, performance, and field assessment data are designated as 
Sensitive Security Information, SSI. Therefore, TSA and SAT will be happy to provide you in a separate briefing. In other words, they said it's classified. We can't say out loud, which does not make me feel really confident that these are really high rates that they're proud of. Um, Maybe it's just fine, but maybe it's just enough that they know they're letting in the wrong people sometimes. When we come back, what happens if, say, the TSA loses your data? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You mentioned accuracy on darker skin tones. We had Deb Raji on the show. She's one of the researchers who did kind of a landmark study on facial recognition showing that it is less accurate on darker skin tones and particularly on on dark-skinned women. Um, And one of the things this makes me think is like, the TSA does not have a great record with making travelers of color feel great and confident. Do they understand that? And and is that something that they have kind of thought about in trying to sell this program to the public? In my conversations with the, the TSA officials running this, they seemed aware of the racial discrepancy that can, can be at play with the use of facial recognition and that there would be sensitivity about it. They tried their own mini study they told me about uh, where they where they tried to sort of understand... Um, and and have people with different uh, racial and ethnic self designations go through and see how it, how how the system responded to them. And I asked them, "What did you learn from that?" And they said, "We learned it's really hard to categorize people," which was not, which is true. I mean, yeah. yes, talk to any anthropologist; it really is. Um, but uh, that's not exactly the same thing that you were talking about. You know, the thing that they kept going back to, which I think is an important part of this conversation, is. 
this is voluntary. You have the right to say no. And I said, okay, but you know, airports are places where um, people are really kind of tense. <laughs> you've, you've, your, your rights have already been curtailed in a bunch of different ways. So do you really feel like you have the right? Do you even know you have the right to opt out? Um, they said, absolutely. And I said, well, what if the, the agent in front of you doesn't really want to let you opt out? They said, you should ask to speak to the supervisor. I put all this in my column. And then I started hearing from Washington Post readers who said, I read your column and I said I wanted to opt out. I told them, please don't take my picture today. And they were told things such as, um, there's always one <laughs> by the person at, 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 you know, the agent at the, at the counter. Um, and so, you know, there's all of these ways in which people get pushed back or get, or, or get treated differently because they're trying to, um, to opt out of these systems. So again, do you really have a choice um, to, to not be part of it. And I know this is one of the things that the Algorithmic Justice League is now working on as a project. Uh, they are trying to do a more scientific version of my inbox, uh, which is to collect the stories, particularly uh, people of color, trans people, all sorts of people who uh, these systems we know are, aren't great at um, necessarily identifying and what experience they have at the airport with it. Well, you just, you just brought up the thing that I was going to ask you about next which is what if your gender identity does not match your government ID? Another really good question. Uh, I haven't seen any statistics about you know, how often they, they deal with that. I did ask, you know, can, can, can the system handle uh, changes in appearance, such as gaining weight? Or, in fact, um, since I made my state ID and my passport, I have grown a beard. I grew a, a COVID beard. Uh, and I was like, would it recognize me? And they said, yes. That shouldn't be a problem. Um, but, you know, faces are complicated and different. And this is this technology is still essentially uh, experimental, right? We're still working on it. We're still figuring it out. Um, and yet that is not slowing us down from implementing it. What happens to this data? Is it stored? Is it discarded? Where does it go? So I'll tell you a little historical story first, and then we'll get to what's happening now. Uh, so I mentioned back in 2019, I investigated uh, some of these uh, programs uh, with customs to, uh, uh, to use facial recognition uh, for people leaving the country or entering the country. Uh, shortly after I wrote that story, one of the concerns I raised in it was, uh, well, once you have a database of people's faces, uh, that could be stolen, right? This is the number one privacy concern out of all of this. Maybe you trust the government, but do you trust the government to keep it safe? And shortly after I published my column, guess what happened? Hmm. They lost a database of people's faces crossing the Canadian border. Uh, they blamed it on a contractor who didn't secure a database, but um, whoever during that period of time was crossing the Canadian border, um, their face is now in somebody's hands. And the thing about faces is they're really hard to replace. Um, so once they're gone, once somebody has, has your face print, um, you're not going to be able to do much about it. So fast forward to today, what is the TSA doing with this data now? So in that one-to-one -one, uh, case that I mentioned, which is the majority of the ones today, right, where it's you're presenting your ID and it's checking it with that ID, uh, TSA says most of the time it deletes that data almost immediately within that day, uh, but not always. 
Sometimes it holds on to it for a while, and they hand it over to uh, their science and research department uh, in order to try to answer the questions from annoying people like me about how effective it is and how well it's working. Uh, and in those cases, they can hold on to it for, they said, a while, a couple of weeks. But, you know, again, we haven't gotten a lot of specifics about that. I read one of your columns from 2019, and you talked about the motivation behind this as being sort of driven by business and immigration. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about who is driving this? Who wants these things to be in airports? Is it just the TSA to say, hey, this is easier for us? Or are there other kind of pressures? Well, I think the number one pressure the government feels is that there was a law passed that said that they have to do this. And so they're sort of, they feel a little bit stuck. The airlines themselves are under constant pressure to reduce costs, reduce, and the biggest cost that they face is humans. And this could be one more thing that they could hmm. do. You don't even have to see a human being to uh, get through the gate. You just smile into a camera. Biometric screening at airports is literally in your face. But facial recognition is more subtle in other places and perhaps more widespread than you think. At the World Cup in Qatar, some 15,000 facial recognition cameras kept an eye on spectators. It's this slow, subtle creep, right? Um, it's actually a model for, you know, we talk so much about artificial intelligence right now. And it's a great example of how things that at first seem, we call them artificial intelligence, and they seem weird and we have to talk about them. And then they just kind of get incorporated into life and we don't call them artificial intelligence anymore. Um, people don't even call their iPhone unlocking facial recognition or artificial intelligence. It's just open. Um, and that's what's happening all around us with this technology. Um, you know, again, being used uh, to get into sporting arenas, um, devices. Um, and then also, I think the next layer that's really going to come along is, uh, you know, over the last uh, five to 10 years, millions and millions and millions of Americans have been convinced uh, to install surveillance cameras into their own homes, uh, ring doorbells, um, Google Home devices, and they are all collecting data, not only of the residents of those homes and people who come to the door, but also people who pass by on the street. If you're listening to this and you say, I don't do anything wrong, I'm a law-abiding citizen, this seems easy to me, why should I care? You should care about privacy because data is power. and. If you want to maintain control over your life, you need to maintain control over your data. Because once somebody else has your data, they can do whatever they want to with it. They can use it in ways that you probably might not have ever imagined in the moment. Um, they could lose it. It could end up in the hands of somebody else. Lots of things that you probably wouldn't want to do. And the only way to stop those outcomes that we can't quite see yet is to make sure that you're holding on to it in the first place. Jeffrey Fowler, thank you so much for talking with me. You bet. Jeffrey Fowler is a tech columnist at The Washington Post. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Patrick Fort. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you like what we are doing here, 
The best way to support this show is to join Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You'll get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.